Kelly, like Timothy Leary, uh, had uh, one way or another arrived at the state where he didn't have a single ego anymore. He became whoever he felt appropriate to become at a given time, uh, which I think is, uh, I call it eye-opening. Uh, it's not quite the non-ego experience of Zen, but it's a good alternative if you don't have one ego. Well, Crowley himself said a single ego is a very narrow view for, from which to look at the world. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Hilaritas Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gathers. Join me here as we explore the vast world of iconic writer, psychedelic psychologist, rebel philosopher, and self-proclaimed agnostic mystic, Robert Anton Wilson. Visit us at hilaritastrust.com slash podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. With the recent release of Hilaritas Press's Lion of Light, Robert Anton Wilson and Alistair Crowley, it is my great pleasure to chat with the man who wrote the foreword to said book, Richard Kaczynski. Richard Kaczynski, welcome to Hilaritas Podcast. No, thank you for having me on. So, um, I have to admit, I am somewhat overwhelmed by all this. Robert Anton Wilson, Aleister Crowley, Richard Kaczynski, I don't even, there's so many things to talk about, so many directions to go, but we, we put together a book, Lion of Light, Robert Anton Wilson on Aleister Crowley. And you wrote a, a lovely forward. I read it again just now or half an hour ago and uh, really appreciate the care and uh, thought that you put into it. Well, it was a it was a pleasure. I've, you know, Robert Anton Wilson was an influence on me from the very beginning um, mm. of my journey. I had picked up a copy of one of his books, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it just it kind of fit into everything that was going on in my world at that time. Mm. The, um, the the idea that you know we had you know just it was like I don't know the time I grew up was just a wash with. You know, UFOs and Bigfoot and ESP and mm -hmm. magic and the occult and witchcraft. And, you know, Robert Antonelson had this view that kind of synthesized it all and um, kind of made sense of it. That combined with this, this idea of model agnosticism, you know, acknowledging that these, that there's weird things out there that are happening to all of us. And we may not be able to explain them, and we don't necessarily have to explain them to recognize that there's something going on, and that these can be tools for uh, self-transformation. You know, those those are ideas that I've you know carried with me, you know, all along my entire journey. That's uh, I wasn't sure uh, what your connection to Robert Anton Wilson was when I asked you to write the forward. I had just seen you on Twitter and thought you'd be a good person to ask. And it was clear from what you wrote that you were very knowledgeable. And now I know you're a fan. That's, that's, yeah. yeah. And it was the cosmic trigger. That was the uh, cosmic trigger. Kind of what I was blocking on. Yeah. That's a good one to uh, reorient people in times of weirdness. Yeah. Yeah. This is like this little, you know, it's like a little like doll or Valentine or something paperback that I'm pretty sure I talked my mom into buying for me because I found it like on, on one of those rotating metal, you know, uh, or wire racks in, in our grocery store. So it's, you know, it's a weird time that you can find that stuff right. in grocery. <laughs> right. I've, I've heard that uh, some of those uh, individual 
versions of Illuminatus when it was in a serialized in three parts, and you could find that at the. It's like holy cow, that's a different yeah, yeah, different world. <laughs> yeah, and I so one thing I just wanted to say is when I was reading your forward, I um, there was a part of me that felt like you were in a way introducing Crowley fans to Robert Anton Wilson through that essay. That's just the way I, I saw a part of it, and I, I thought that was really neat. So I wanted to, again, just thank you for that. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. I mean, we were kind of hoping this book draws audiences both ways, you know, uh, makes more uh, the Crowley folks, you know, hip to what Rabbit Anton Wilson was saying. And again, maybe some of the, uh, you know, Wilson crowd will check out Crowley a little bit farther. Yeah, it seems to be... Uh getting a lot of traction so far. I think it's been, what, not even a month it's been out. Wonderful. You mentioned a couple of things in your forward. One is The Soldier and the Hunchback, which is, I think, a big favorite of Robert Anton Wilson's. Yeah, I love that one too. Can you tell me a little bit about what you love about it? I mean, just from the the title itself, um, the idea that Crowley associates the, the soldier with the exclamation mark, and that, that this is, in, in addition, you know, associated with you know a state of arousal and awareness mm. assertion, whereas the hunchback is the question mark, and that's you know the, that state of inquiry and doubt, and how these these two states of mind basically kind of oscillate and uh, go back and forth in in one's journey. I, I love the metaphor of it. Uh, I remember actually at one point, um, I'm also a piano player, and I remember like, having a dream where I like I wrote a piece of music about the soldier and the hunchback, and uh, it was one of those moments where I could actually like wake up from the dream and play the thing on the piano, which has never happened to me before. So, um, oh, wow, yeah, so clear that's uh, that's that's a piece that you know, resonates uh, very much with me, my my soul, I guess. And nice. I've always I've always liked it. As a, as a Wilson fan, I, I think of it as a, that juxtaposition of certitude and doubt. But when you yeah. talk about the symbolism of the the question mark and the exclamation point and the energetics of it all, it, it brings some, like an embodiment piece to it for me that I hadn't thought about. I like that. That's interesting, yeah, because there, there is like research in psychology that kind of shows that posture actually can uh, alter you know your 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 consciousness and that. Uh, yeah, this that the, these um, sort of if you're in a reclined or hunched over posture, you actually begin to feel a little bit more passive than if you're in a more alert or an assertive pose. So it's uh, yeah, in that sense, it's kind of kind of prescient. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the soldier and the energetics and the exclamation point, and I just put all like whoa, hit me in the face, um, stood me up straight. Yeah, the aeon of or, or is it Horus with an H? Yes. yes. Uh, you mentioned that as well, and that's uh, a piece you mentioned is, is timeless in how I used the hermit, the lover, and the man of earth to describe three, uh, what I, my notes were short there. Yeah, Did three you, chapters of the book of the law. And that was maybe a different interpretation than Crowley had on it, if I understood you right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought that was... The, Again, kind of illustrating a rather um, you know unconventional take on the Book of the Law, but or you know, unorthodox. But um, at the same time, it's, it's I think it shows the Wilson's creativity. You know, um, traditionally speaking, you know the the entirety of the Book of the Law is 
describing, you know, the philosophy of this new eon or the eon of Horus that began with, you know, Crowley receiving that text through automatic writing or however you want to describe it back in 1904. And those three chapters are traditionally associated with the, I know what, what Crowley called Nuit, which was uh, an Egyptian goddess of the sky, but in Crowley's uh, writings or in Thelema, it's much more the idea of the infinite, the you know, all possibilities, the all-inclusive, you know, the perhaps, you know, the, the quantum state of what, what anything that could be possible, if you like. And uh, the second chapter is attributed to the idea of Hadith, which again, in Egyptian mythology is like the winged disc, but in Crowley's take is a little bit, is a, the manifestation, it's a particular point or a particular outcome of that infinite possibility. And then the third chapter uh, attributed to Rauhur Quit or, or Horus is the, the child of those two. And mm-hmm. um, and so traditionally, you know, this, this book is just seen as, you know, the a, a revelation or expression of of the eon from these three points of view. But, um, you know, the new essay that's published in the book, Wilson is uh, talking about these three grades, the hermit, the lover, the man of earth, and kind of assigning those chapters to each of those. And uh, also kind of bringing in the eon of, the, the previous eons, you know, of uh, Isis and Osiris, and just kind of mapping that all together was, yeah, just very interesting to me. You know, I, I love the idea of trying on different theories and perspectives, and whether or not I, I agree with them or not, I just, the intellectual process of, okay, I'm going to wear this hat today and think of the world in the, mm. um, you know, in the way that's different from what I usually think about was, was really, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed, in particular, that part of the essay. Nice. And that, from what my understanding of Crowley, that would be a Crowley thing to do. Try something on, see how it fits, take what you like, leave the rest. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Crowley said, no one else can interpret the book of the law for you. That mm. read the text and you want to read his writings and commentaries and then draw your own conclusions. Um, I think in, in a sense that was trying to avoid you know, the sort of rigid orthodoxy of the religion that he grew up in. Yeah. And, um, I don't, I think that's, uh, that's kind of the approach I took in writing you know, my book, Perdurambo, um, the life of Alistair Crowley, where, whereas previous writers really wanted to tell you their opinion of Crowley. Um, I, I kept my opinion out of it. I said, here, here's the story. Here's the facts, love them or hate them. Yeah. Draw your own conclusions, but at least, you know, have an informed opinion. Yeah. I just read Perdurambo or most of it. It's, that's a pretty big one. Yeah. Um, recently here in preparation for this interview, and it had been a while since I'd really dug into Crowley, so maybe part of it was timing and just where I'm at, but it really humanized him for me, deeply so. Like, part of me, uh, as, as he got older and he ran out of money and just poverty and illness and insomnia and depression, not, not that that was a constant in his life, but just he would have episodes of that. And uh, I developed a compassion for Crowley I don't think I had before. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, I, I felt like a lot of the um, prior biographies had, again, taken this very, um, either a very hostile approach or almost an overly sympathetic approach. But the hostile ones seemed to kind of rule the day, uh, at least mm-hmm. in, in Ralph Denton Wilson's time. And uh, the, you know, the result of that is kind of this 
you know, cardboard cutout, you know, just Jesus, the bad guy, you know, and, um, I, I, again, another thing I really appreciated about the, the new essay, um, but, you know, and Wilson's writing in general is this idea that he kind of sees through that and finds, you know, the depth of Crowley's person. And, um, you know, unfortunately it wasn't until, you know, the, you know, 21st century that writers like myself, Lawrence Sutton and Martin Booth took a more scholarly approach and, and tried to tell, you know, this nuanced story as, you know, really digging deep into Crowley and his person and his life story and what he had to say. Yeah. It's, it seems like there's been, even since that wave of biographies that you were part of 20 years ago, there's been even much more information come out. Is that, I, I, well, go ahead. It's interesting because the, the, one of the things I found very interesting to say about uh, like uh, Tobias Churton's biography or his book and biographies um, of Crowley is that, you know, we, we were all working with this, the same source material. And um, the, the pieces that we kind of glom onto uh, to, to tell mm-hmm. the story still are going to be different, and we're going to come up with a slightly different version of the story. I've heard uh, some people, I, I think, you know, one of the, the scholar Marco Passi has said that, yeah, I think at this point we've got enough Crowley biographies. What we really need to do is focus on like one aspect and dig deep. And that's something that I've something I've tried to do with my more recent books you know i've got a book called panic in detroit which just focuses on this period when he was in uh detroit trying to set up oto there and you know i've dug up his correspondence and newspaper articles and these court case transcriptions and just like everything you want to know about this specific little niche and uh, later this year i have a book coming out from oxford university press which looks specifically at the influence of agnosticism mm. early in the early, you know, the formative years of Philema. And again, so it's not just trying to tell this big story, but just says, let's just pick this one little thread and let's follow it through his writings and those of his co-conspirators, I guess, <laughs> and, um, and tell that, that story and, and flesh out, you know, the kind of an unexplored piece of history. Nice. Nice. Can you give us, I, I know you did a talk last week on the agnosticism piece, I believe. Can you give us a short hit on that? Yeah, well, the, the thing about the agnosticism is that there is this movement to keep uh, religion out of, out of secular life. You know, this idea that religion should not be the basis for how we organize society or how we pass our laws, but that we should be running more on a, you know, a critically thinking, you know, evidence-based model. Mm. And, you know, what Crowley and his two compatriots, uh, JFC Fuller and Victor Neuberg, all came from these really strict religious backgrounds and were kind of rebelling against religion. And they liked this idea, let's, you know, let's get out of religion, let's focus on science and what science can tell us. And part and parcel of that was also rebelling against a lot of this uh, sexual repression and they were much more into like the the you know the free love sort of of ideas, and they all met each other through this movement, and they kind of broke away at, together at the same time and started Thalema. You know, Crowley kind of as the prime mover, but these other two uh, very very important in the foundation of it, and they just you know borrowed all kinds of ideas. Crowley kind of carried this scientific based notion, for instance into a term that he called scientific illuminism. 
idea that you can approach magic from a very empirical process and evaluate your results and, and critically decide whether it's working for you or not, and if not, move on to try something else. And uh, his journal, he started publishing kind of an, a, a, again, an echo of things like the Agnostic Journal and the Literary Guide and Rationalist Review. Um, he published the Equinox, whose motto was the method of science name of religion. And so you just see a lot of these ideas kind of flowing out of agnosticism into those uh, early years uh-huh. of his movement. So that scientific approach came from agnosticism. Is that... Um... Yeah. That's my argument, at least. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And it, and I think it's pretty clear that you know he was you know all three of them were very much involved in that. So the parallels, at least, are very uh, you know unmistakable. So it may not be you know agnosticism that you know it may be more that you know again they, it, that suited them where they were coming from, but uh, you know those ideas certainly are common between the two. Gotcha. Gotcha. Certainly, uh, I believe that was that scientific approach is a big part of what uh, Robert Anton Wilson appreciates about Crowley. Yeah, exactly. So we just see these these ideas kind of just carrying forth over subsequent generations. Right. Um, yeah. Here we are. You know, 120 years later, still trying to uh, push against you know people pushing their religious beliefs into our laws. So you know, things haven't changed as much as perhaps they should. <laughs> well, I hesitate to introduce the subject of drugs because I don't want to get wrapped up in party stuff and addiction stuff, but in terms of scientific experimentalism, that would be a thing for Robert Anton Wilson is the experimentation with drugs, and I I learned that he Crowley used mescaline, but it didn't seem to have the same... um, like sex was kind of became a centerpiece for him, but drugs and, and everything was journaled out. But drugs, I, I didn't get the impression there was as much documentation, or I don't know. But maybe you can fill me in yeah. there. I think it's fair to say that Crowley certainly had a phase of experimentation with drugs, and um, Emuskelin was one that he really seemed to find useful. He, in fact, had a had a diary that he called the Cactus, so we know that this existed because he writes about it and. Uh, and he gives it a title and a liber number in his, you know, body of works. But unfortunately, the manuscript doesn't survive. And it's, um, mm. and the story there is kind of trippy, because, you know, no pun intended. But, um, you know, he he, uh, he claims to have been the one to introduce its use in, in Europe. And that doesn't seem to be the case, but he certainly was an early advocate. There's uh, a suggestion that during his rites of Eleusis, Mm. Uh, a, a series of uh, magical plays, basically, that he staged at Caxton Hall in London that he passed around a, a libation that was uh, dosed <laughs> and, uh, so to help the audience kind of get into the, uh, the spiritual ecstasy of, the, of the, these plays. And when he came back to America during World War I, he actually hooked up with Park Davis Labs you know, the pharmaceutical company, and they actually made like a preparation of uh, you know, this for him to carry out his experiments. So it's just, it's <laughs> a little insane today to think that, you know, Park Davis made Crowley's, you know, peyote pills or whatever. Right, right. In different, different times. And it almost seemed, as I just, as I was thinking about this right now, like a proto Timothy Leary thing, whereas I understand it, he was kind of in this 
in his time in the U.S. during World War One, where he was kind of in this social upper class party scene and bringing mescaline around. Is that accurate? Yeah. Well, the, the thing to keep in mind too is that at, at that point in history, um, all of these things were legal. It wasn't until about yeah. One or twenty-two, that the Dangerous Drugs Act was passed. So, um, you know, clearly he could he could you know go down to the the chemist and buy whatever drugs he wanted. You know, by comparison, you know, there's you know some letters from Sigmund Freud, you know, where he writes that he 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 likes that his mistress uses cocaine because he likes the red flush that it gives her cheeks. Right. Um. So it was it was a very different world then. Yeah, there's, you know, you know, absinthe and laudanum, you know, there he had a cocktail with laudanum called like the Maya cocktail or something that he served <laughs> parties and stuff. And it's it's so yeah, but you know, a lot a lot of the times with Crowley though, because he was a magician and because he was journaling, um, he was very scrupulously recording his impressions from taking these drugs. And you know, he would say things like opium didn't do anything for him, but um you know, he was a big fan of cocaine for a while there. And I think one thing, since we're on the topic, I think it's worth saying that people in the past have made a big deal about Crowley's use of heroin and kind of saying that he was like this lifelong junkie and that, you know, at the end of his life, he could take enough heroin to kill a room full of people. <laughs> John Simons famously said, like a Hunter S. Thompson his time. Yeah, but the, the, the fact of the matter is what happened was Crowley... At about, at about, I don't know, in his mid-40s, and developed a, a bad case of asthma. And apparently this is something that's pretty common amongst mountain climbers. Because you know, yeah. they spend a lot of time at a high altitude, and that's kind of a hot, you know, difficult for the lungs to handle. And this, around 1919, his doctor prescribed heroin under the impression that the analgesic effects of heroin would help open up his, his airway. And unfortunately, what winds up happening is when the Dangerous Drug Acts uh, get passed, both in the U.S. and in England, um, just a couple of years later, you know, you've got the situation where Crowley is addicted. You know, it's kind of, you know, similar to the situation that we're having, you know, here in the U.S., you know, with these, you know, these other prescription drugs that uh, people are getting hooked on. And yeah, even... Xanax. There's people out there that are uh, heavily addicted to Xanax because the doctor prescribed it, and we now know it's just uh, over time it's can be lethal yeah. to to wean off of it. So yeah, so um, so yeah. So in a way, this is kind of comparable to like this this you know opiate crisis we're having right now. That right. But um, you know, Crowley winds up sourcing his heroin from dealers for a couple of years while he's living in. Italy, and then you know he runs out of money and resources, and winds up going cold turkey. Basically, there's a diary entry where he's talking about being sick and feverishly, and his legs are kicking around involuntarily, and he wound up breaking the end table and things like that mm. from from his you know, from his withdrawals. Wow. And so that so that's like that concludes like a five year period of his experience with heroin, and then there's these other drugs that are on the market. But then it turns out that, again, and this, so that's like Crowley about 45 to 50 years of age. And then when he's around 68, 69, his, his asthma gets so bad that the, the medications out there aren't working for him anymore. And by this time, the government had come around to realizing there are certain medicinal uses of heroin. 
and he gets prescribed that again. And this is, again, in his late 60s. And um, for the rest of his life, he has these very controlled, medically administered, you know, mailed to him or, you know, picked up from his pharmacist the, the doses uh, that he took basically for his breathing. So, um, yeah. I know that's kind of a long digression, but a lot of people have this mistaken picture of, you know, Crowley and the heroin. I just kind of wanted to <laughs> get that out of my system. That's fair enough. No, it's, uh, there's so many different yeah directions to head. Like it seemed like during the maybe pre golden dawn years, it was at Oxford where he, uh, was kind of on the petty scene, like a trust fund party kid. And, uh, Oh yeah, very much. Yeah, that was uh, at, at Trinity College, Cambridge, and um, Cambridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just I mean, just imagine. I mean, he was he was raised in a really strict fundamentalist household. I mean, he they controlled you know his parents controlled what he could read. You know, most it was mostly the Bible. You know, they didn't really celebrate Christmas. Super strict. Yeah, as you know, father was against, you know, or, or his, his uncle, you know, or against smoking, you know, saying if God wanted you to smoke, he'd put a chimney on top of your head. And then um, he reaches his majority. He moves away from home to a college dorm. You know, he's inherited this fortune when his dad dies. And so he discovers sex and poetry and drugs and <laughs> smoking and drinking and gambling. And, you know, he goes kind of hog wild, you know, for a while, you know, experimenting as, you know, most people do in college. Yeah. Sex, drugs, and poetry. Yeah. <laughs> is there, this is my own curiosity, I guess, but what are the college party drugs in Cambridge at that time? Do you have a sense of? Oh, gosh. I, I don't know. I, I get the sense that much of the his experimentation with drugs kind of coincided with his entering the Golden Dawn because one of his mentors, mm. Bennett, Similarly, he had severe problems with asthma. Yeah, and went through this kind of rotation of drugs he would take to treat his symptoms, and that um, when Crowley found him kind of living destitute, invited him to be his roommate. And so living together, Crowley got the benefit of being able to try some of these uh, drugs that was using uh, to control his symptoms. Gotcha. Yeah, there's a there's a uh, master's thesis by a guy named uh, Patrick Everett. You can find online who really delves into um, Crowley and his drug use and makes some makes an argument that a lot of Crowley's um, visionary works, you know, such as his uh, work with the Enochian Aethers called the Vision, the Voice, mm-hmm. was partly due to his his use of hallucinogenics. It's an interesting argument. I don't know that I 100% agree with it, but again, like I was saying uh, earlier about Robin and Ken Wilson's approach to the Book of the Law, I think it's an interesting hypothesis to look at. But I also think that a lot of this imagery uh, and language that you see in the Vision of the Voice is also kind of a copy of, you know, like the Book of Enoch and the Book of Revelations uh, that you would see in the Bible, which would be something that Crowley was very familiar with. And it's not necessarily an either-or argument, too. It's possible that both things are true. But I would say that uh, folks want to pursue that area of inquiry, um, that, that that thesis would be That's the uh, way. place to go. So that, I guess that brings up for me kind of my bigger question is I would assume that if he was using those substances in the desert, that that would be part of the journals. Yeah, I would be surprised if he wasn't documenting that. 
Yeah, well, part of part of the trouble is there's places where while Crowley was a very fastidious about keeping diaries, right? Some of his moves and which sometimes involved, you know, being kicked out of hotels and people confiscating his property or things getting you know seized by customs and so on, were you know being left in the care of lawyers or publishers and so on. There are some diaries that get lost and. Yeah. While the the record of the visions from the vision of the voice um, exists, there the diaries from those that year don't. So it's you know hey. again, the record is kind of ambiguous. So uh, I got gotcha. you. We have to figure it out the best we can. Right. Yeah, and I, I guess I've been said I didn't want to lay down this one, and here I am. But it, <laughs> I guess my wanting is to see more of that diary, that kind of scientific approach and and what his assessment of these drugs were. I think uh, in various things and just getting his opinions on them and his assessment of them, I think in um, the Do It Thou Wilt essay, Wilson includes a little bit about hashish. And I'm just, just curious on his take. I was looking for more of that. The other thing I wanted to touch on is uh, one of the many things is the mountaineering thing. Oh, yeah. I, I rock climb in a gym once a month, uh, so I'm cool. a little familiar, but I'm not really what I would call a mountaineer, but I know those people now, and I've been around that crowd, and it, I have a much deeper appreciation for what Crowley did, um, and it, it boggles my mind. It, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he got bronchitis, two expeditions into the Himalayas that were what around 20,000 feet or more and and right. one of them he, they were up there for weeks at a yeah. time go ahead yeah no I mean I was you know just in you know, Denver last week and you know people were that's what what like a, a thousand feet or how it's at the elevator 10,000 feet right yeah, so the, the city sits at five or 6,000 feet, probably at six in Golden, and then you're looking at mountains that go pretty quickly to eight within a mile or two, and then 14,000 in the background. Um, with all of, all of us visitors there in Denver, we're being told, oh, you're going to get altitude sickness and be you know get be, be ready to go to you know, your local store and get some <laughs> oxygen. And Crowley and his you know group were, as you say, at you know, 20,000 feet. And they didn't have any of that stuff that people climb with today. I mean, they didn't have oxygen or any of that other stuff. I mean, it was, they were they were roughing it. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's um, I was reading about another explorer, Mallory, that was on Everest, roughly the same time frame that Crowley was making his expeditions on much harder mountains. And, you know, it's like uh, wool, like a silk, silk, uh, almost what you would call uh long pajamas and then wool and cotton layers and uh it just you know now they have four four inches of down goose down feathers they wear and they still get cold and so just when i think of the mountaineering stuff though it, it always made sense because it's like an act of will because when you're up that altitude it you're you're running on 90 percent willpower and you know you're not eating well you're not sleeping well you're not breathing well and he was, uh, well, I forget the details of the record, but, you know, set the record for the highest ascent on that mountain at the time. Yeah. And it stood until like 1950. So it was yeah. years, you know, that record was unbroken. And, and, uh, and it turned out that the people who did finally summit K2 found that the, the route that he chose was, in fact, you know, the best route. So, um, you know, if had it not been for the bad weather they had on that particular expedition, you know, they, they may have made it to the top. Yeah, that would have been something else. 
And and then what strikes me is is that the contrast of some of his uh, climbing in, in the UK is on um, chalk cliffs. That is just a completely different type of climbing. And it's uh, if I'm understanding what he was climbing right, it's just very unique and that chalk is really fragile and brittle. So you have to move really slow. You have to really, it's balance and delicacy and distributing your weight and moving very deliberately. So there's a lot of will and, and climbing in general, but it's uh, there's a whole, it's almost like ballet compared to just brute force of mountaineering. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the um, there are parts of uh, Beachy Head, which is one of the places he climbed, right. and there's parts of there are features of Beachy Head that have since you know eroded away and no longer exist that he had climbed up. So yeah, that's only a, a very a soft and typical surface to climb. Yeah, but so to me, that just illustrates his range as a person. I think as, as a Robert Anton Wilson fan, when I get is that one of the way Wilson portrays him is just this multi-dimensional dude. You know, we got a poet and a lover and a magician and a scientist and and uh, and the climber. And even as a climber, you know, we've got the mountaineer and you've got the chalk, and it's just uh, fascinating to me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's really one of the things that fascinates me most about Crowley as well. This 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 multidimensionality that you talk about that uh, he distinguishes himself in so many different ways. I think any one of us would be satisfied you know considering we had a good life if we distinguished ourselves in just one of those things and yet he was um out there doing all just this wide variety of things i mean again love him or hate him it's it's uh is a fascinating character for that reason alone this um popped into my head out of nowhere yesterday and we might have to chalk this off to the strange things that you come across when you hang out in robert anton wilson internet forums <laughs> I read this website, something about the order of lamb, and it's, oh, gosh. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so here, well, here's the story about, about that. The background here is that in one of his volumes of the equinoxes, you know, occult literary publication, he republished H.P. Blavatsky's paper, The Voice of the Silence, adding his own commentary to it. And as kind of the frontispiece to that publication, he included a drawing. Um, Crowley was you know, doing some artwork um, at that time and just kind of getting started, in fact. And this drawing is of a very large-headed entity, a uh, being, figure, let, let's just put it that way. And, um, you know, sm these small eyes, very large cranium, and... The images captured, you know, the, the way captioned the way, and he talks about how the idea of the Tibetan Lama, you know, because Blavatsky was all about these uh, Mahatmas or ascended masters who instructed her. So he talks about how you know the the word Lama comes from the root Lam to go, and so on and so on and so forth. Well, fast forward, you know, twenty plus years later. Kenneth Grant is, you know, as, as a very young man, is a working as a secretary for Alistair Crowley. But during the war, you know, things are kind of difficult because Crowley's living out in the out in the country, and Kenneth Grant is, uh, you know, is a city person, and he is far from his beloved. So when they part ways on good terms, Crowley gifts him with that drawing from the Equinox, and Kenneth Grant attributes you know, a lot of significance to 
this particular thing being gifted to him. Um, and subsequently in, you know, Kenneth Grant's uh, Typhonian order, um, this whole, um, I don't know, magical movement has sprung up around this particular drawing, you know, because, you know, um, in our modern times, you know, that drawing very much resembles that of a gray alien. So there's a lot of people who think that Crowley made contact with, you know, aliens, you know, uh, astrally or interdimensionally or something way back in 1919. You know, there's, I think there's other ways one could look at that. You know, Crowley's own uh, self-portraits of himself, or there's one very well-known self-portrait of himself with his huge cranium as well. Mm. So some people suggested that this is actually a self-portrait, you know, as well. Yeah, regardless, uh, the idea is that you know, a lot of people have picked up on this as some sort of a magical, uh, you know, entity, you know, an astral being that could be contacted, much like Crowley himself had contacted beings, you know, like Amalantro, the wizard, or Abelbees. And um, people continue to work with that drawing and trying to contact whatever that, you know, they, they perceive that to be. Ah. Uh-huh. Well, I think I ran into the website of the folks that believe it to be an alien many, many years ago. Yeah. I, I was quite shocked when it popped into my head because I hadn't thought about it in at least a decade. Yeah. So I, I, I hope I kind of did justice there without trying to uh, either dismiss or... Uh, uh, no, I think you're... But just kind of say, there's, there's the facts. There's the facts. There's the facts. It's what it is. I wanted to talk about the vision and the voice workings. I know a lot have been made about Ronzon, and I'm still not sure I understand. So these were the, this went back to Dee and Kelly, right? These 38ers? Yes. And did um, my lucid understanding is that Dee and Kelly just kind of channeled these entities and wrote down what they heard and that Crowley and Neuberg were more invoking them? Is that, am I making stuff up? Yeah, well, um, yeah, in a way, what what, what happened was uh, John Dee was the court astrologer to Queen Elizabeth, and he found a, a partner in Edward Kelly who was a gifted scryer or medium, um, mm-hmm. which meant that um, in these workings, trying to contact angelic beings, you know, D would act as the scribe, and Kelly would describe what he would what he was seeing. And uh, the way these visions kind of worked was that there were these big tables, these grids with letters in this, you know, uh, alphabet. Um, no, now called Enochian. What uh, Edward Kelly would do is he would, you know, say, "Okay, the angel is looking at, you know, table four, column three, row twelve." Mm-hmm. Now we. And get this, and 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 through this method, these calls or invocations were transmitted in in the Enochian language, and um, you know a lot of this, you know, for Dean Kelly was this, and again, it was this, it was spiritual science for them, you know. And there there's a whole lot of other crazy stuff to their story too, you know. At one point, the angels, you know, kind of famously tell. Kelly that uh, they should swap wives and uh, you know whether that was actually something Angel said or whether this was just Kelly's way of banging his uh, benefactor's wife. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I'll again leave both to draw their own conclusions. But um, what uh, Crowley and Neuberg then did was they took these in, these calls or these uh, invocations of the thirty ethers. You can kind of think of it as a series of concentric circles starting from you know our world and going out. 
just going, you know, doing each of those invocations while they're marching through, you know, the desert in Algeria. And uh, with each one of the ethers, you know, they, they would you know, do the invocation and then Crowley, like, like Kelly, would gaze into a, a crystal and describe what he was seeing and Victor Neuberg would be the scribe writing it down. So their method was actually a lot different and simpler than mm-hmm. what D and Kelly did, which involved a whole lot of paraphernalia, whereas uh, Crowley and Arbor were basically, you know, again, on a hiking trip, you know, through Algeria. And the use of like a little crystal kind of harkens back to this crystal gazing, which was a really big fad in the Victorian era. Um, a lot of Crowley's predecessors in occultism were like you know, Frederick, Frederick Hockley and so on, were really big into obtaining visions through crystals. So in a way, he was kind of following more in that tradition, but using these Enochian invocations and then writing these very wild, trippy, you know, visions of what he was seeing, you know, again, very much in line with the sorts of apocalyptic things you would read in, in the Bible. But and on Crowley's mind, the you know exploring and expanding on his ideas and understanding of his the system of magic and of his philosophy of Thelema. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, they went through thirty of them, and then I guess getting to Karanzan. Karanzan was associated with the the tenth ether, and he you know, Crowley started with thirty and was working his way up to one, and so this is kind of you know about two thirds through the process. And uh, Quran, you know, this this call was described by Dee and Kelly as cursed. Um, mm, okay. So, yeah, they took extra precautions, and Quranzan um, is kind of uh, considered to be this demon of dispersion. You know, just you know, by by confronting everything with its opposite, kind of annihilates everything. And mm. um, for Crowley, the vision and the voice working of through know, thirty ethers was a process of initiation. So this is where it gets kind of complicated. So the grade system or degree system in you know, the Golden Dawn and in Crowley's own magical system is modeled on the Tree of Life. And for each of your paths up the Tree of Life, there's there's a connector, you know, there um, you know ten uh, sphere out or, or circles on this on this Tree of Life, and twenty two paths for the twenty two letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But it turns out that from this the the peak of this second you know grade or triad on the tree of life to the top three uh, there is no path mm. and, and Crowley you know again this is kind of um, uh, a space where you know the model kind of dictates okay there's there's no path there how do we get there and in Crowley's mind there's like some abyss that needs to be crossed and the only way you can cross the abyss is basically you know to be become lighter than air and how do you do well, it's just everything that you are basically is annihilated. Mm. You know, you're reduced to dust, and just your essence kind of floats across the abyss, and uh, you're kind of reconstituted on the other side, as it were, and um, you know, uh, figuratively, of course. And uh, Karanzan kind of represents that force of dissolution of of annihilation, much like Crowley talks about the figure of Babylon, who. He takes from the Book of Revelation and um, recasts as this this figure who, you know, collects all your blood in her cup, leaving nothing behind, and thus, you know, allowing you to cross over this chasm to the other side, where the the Mahatmas or the secret chiefs or what have you reside. Hmm. And I think it's an eye of the triangle that regarding is really critical of this working, and so. 
I don't remember the details, but I was reading about this in Perturabo with with enhanced interest, and uh, it seemed to me like Newberg was really the one that was tested during that ritual. Like, yeah, the, the the unusual thing about this is that uh, in, in that particular vision, Crowley takes the unprecedented step of actually sitting in a triangle of art. So one of the, in, in magic, when you're dealing with other entities, there's usually two ways you can go about this. One is evocation, where you're calling something up in front of you to uh, you know, visible appearance or so on, so you can uh, interact with it like you and I are having a conversation. But there's also a process of invocation where you can call an entity into yourself. The idea being that, you know, you by doing so, you can kind of inhabit or draw some of the characteristics of that entity, you know, into yourself. So if, you know, you might invoke, you know, Hermes or Mercury, you know, if you want to, you know, be a better writer or something like that. And by stepping into the triangle where Karamzan was being summoned, Cory entity Karamzan in the body Crowley were kind of overlapping and so it's when you read this account of what's going on it's unclear how much of this that's going on the tormenting and the testing of Neuberg is being done literally by Crowley or is being done or, or so being done figuratively you know by by Karanzan uh, because you know, there's there, you know according to the record you know the, the the entity is changing shape and assuming different forms and clearly you know Crowley was not, his body was not changing shape or form. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's this really weird and ambiguous yeah. situation, but yeah, Victor Neuberg very much is tormented and tested and reckoned and cajoled and, uh, you know, caused to feel doubts, you know, um, but, uh, as a good student, you know, he persists. He did. He held strong. <laughs> I was impressed. Yeah. I think I, yeah, I don't know. I could have done that. So if I understand the difference maybe in the 10th is that he did an invocation instead of an evocation. Is that part of the procedural well, difference? Yeah, that's that's the only one where Crowley describes um, actually being in the triangle. Where, and you know, and this, this has led people to claim things like, oh, he became possessed and, and was possessed for the rest of his life. And <laughs> And uh, I don't, I don't buy that personally. I mean, I don't really see a difference in his personality or behavior or anything else that's different from before or after that experience. Right. Yeah. Certainly the experience was a uh, sort of an initiation, but it's not like he was this, you know, like Linda Blair and the exorcist or anything like that. You know, <laughs> sometimes people see a little bit too much uh, Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> don't take all the fun out of it. <laughs> So, yeah, it's funny. There's just all these different angles and um feels like sometimes we want to talk about Crowley and other times we're trying to dispel the myth that people have already created around him. And, you know, I, I guess one of my impressions is that he was a bit of a talker and that it could be, and I don't know if that's true or not, but he just kind of, he was described maybe as braggadocious or a big talker in social circles at times. And I was surprised that uh, when I read your book, Perturabo, that there was this elevation to, I believe, the nine equals two grade that he really kept quiet for his whole life. Is that accurate? Ah, uh, yeah, that was, yeah, the, the, that would be actually be the, the obsessiveness grade, the 10 equals one grade. Oh, okay. That's, 
not to get nerdy and detail oriented, but yes, yes, oh, no, that's important. Yeah. yeah, but yes, he he was he was very 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 uh, clear that he was a magus, but the the great after that obsessiveness he kept quiet about. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I found most interesting is that Crowley does have that reputation. And um, when I was working on at least the the revised edition of Perdurabo, the difference between that time and the prior edition that I had written that came out in 2002 is that we had online these massive archives of newspapers and census data and birth and death certificates and so on. And it became really possible to go through his confessions when he talks about various things in his life and to find these people that he talks about. So when he mm. says that, you know, as a school kid, you know, he he wished and prayed for his instructor to die and then they died. They did die and he goes, he felt really bad, like, oh my God, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> and um I was able to like find you know, who that instructor was and um, say, yeah, that, that really happened. This, as much as Crowley is described as being an exaggerator, I, I found that, you know, I was able to actually verify, you know, the existence of these people and the events that he talked about. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't, you know, a braggart and he talked a lot about it and maybe, you know, told a fish story here or two, but, um, you know, my, my impression, having gone through and kind of, kind of trying to fact check and, and corroborate the stuff and he says in his confessions is that he's actually a fairly honest uh, narrator of his own life. I mean, it's obviously mm -hmm. from his perspective. Sure. You know, what he's talking about, I mean, it's all stuff that actually happened in his letters and diaries and, and again, in the historical record, you know, the censuses and all that stuff, uh, newspapers, accounts and so on, you know, backs it up. Interesting. I um I was traveling about three weeks ago and I was at a, a guest house and they had a, a bookshelf and on that bookshelf was uh I'm terrible with names but Somerset Monogon Somerset Mom yeah and his and the magician and he had in the introduction there he wrote like uh you know we were at whatever that place in Paris that everybody hung out at and the, he was a braggart I didn't like it shot noir yes yeah. So it's, it's funny, no, that, that, that story, um, because uh, in the 1920s, Metro Goldwyn made a silent film of The Magician. Mm. Crowley actually got pissed off about this because he said, you know, the character of Oliver Haddo is, is based on me, and you made this film without permission, you know, uh, from me as, as the character. And so, you know, the studio is like, okay, well, how much money do you want? He was like, I do not want money. I want a contract to make films, uh, you know, educational films about magic. <laughs> and of course that fell through. So uh, he should have taken the money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, um, boy, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Should we go into that? Part of me wants to unpack that and wants to unpack that um, with the, the second part, love is the law, love under will. It seems like that gets neglected a lot. Yeah, here's some guy I'll, I'll, how I'll approach this is that um, while Crowley says that one should, yeah, these these two lines come from the book of the law, and he says that people should find, kind of interpret the, that book uh, from their own terms. That's mm -hmm. okay. written quite a lot about both those phrases, and um, I'll do my best to paraphrase and encourage your readers to kind of, or your readers or listeners, <laughs> to um, you know explore that for themselves, but. In essence, what Crowley says is that do it that will be the whole of the law, which is often misinterpreted as do whatever you want, right. is actually about um, using 
I don't know, just, just reflecting and discovering your purpose, your will, your, your true nature, your calling or what have you, you know, why are you here in this incarnation and to focus everything, all your efforts toward that, toward becoming the version of yourself, the best possible version of yourself, the version you're meant to be again, to exclusion of all other things that might, uh, you know, distract you from doing that. Crowley's mind, that's the essence of do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. It's do your will, the thing you're here to do. And that's the whole of the law. That's all you, you know, that's, that's the only thing that you should do. Love is the law, live under will. Um, in, in one of his essays called Duty, um, he talks about this idea that we, we live in a world with lots of experiences available to us and that in, in this brief incarnation of ours, we should um, embrace these, these opportunities, which will then allow us to become more well-rounded people and um, have a wider base of experience and knowledge from which to experience the world. So the idea of how love is law, love under will, in some in one sense, can be taken as the embracing of life's opportunities as a form of enriching your, your yourself on your path. Nice. So for those that are interested, these magic podcasts seem to be really popular, and I'm wondering, and we have a lot of do-it-yourselfers, I think, that love to read books, but what is out there in terms of magic? We have the AA, which I heard you describe as the Golden Dawn on steroids, and the OTO, which I heard you describe as uh, Freemasonry on steroids, and I love that metaphor. And I know you were you were just down the road from me last weekend at an OTO convention. W- what is out there for folks that are interested in these things? Yeah, um, well, I guess I'll start with those two groups that you that you mentioned because they were groups that Crowley himself had started um, or became head of in the case of OTO and. Um, Again, AA was a, an offshoot of the Golden Dawn, um, which was the group that he belonged to, um, fresh out of Trinity College, Cambridge. And, you know, that, that's, and that was the system where the grades are based on the Kabbalistic tree of life and so on. And that group kind of imploded through internal mm-hmm. politics, as is often the case. Ian Crowley and, um, one of the former, another Golden Dawn member, uh, George Cecil Jones, and Crowley's uh, agnostic colleague, uh, J.F.C. Fuller, restarted this organization, but they incorporated a lot more into it. You know, Crowley had spent a lot of time studying yoga and so on. But it's essentially this graded system of uh, magical work. It's kind of like you know, the, the traditional invisible college, as it were. And um, contrasting that with Ordo Templi Orientis, which he came into a few years later, and you know, became the British head of it, and then later uh, international head. Um, and it's based more on a Masonic model. And while there is certainly teaching that happens in its initiations, um, it also has the advantage of, of being kind of having a social component. So in the AA, really, you're, you're, this is all about your own solitary work, and you the only person you have communication with is either your teacher or any students you have below you. Whereas the OTO, I mean, is more about, about a community. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a the great thing about community is that, you know, you, you, you do this work in a silo, you know, uh, by yourself. And that's, that's great, but there's just nothing like being together in a community, whether it's, you know, going to 
some some camping festival or a conference or just getting together at your local lodge or what have you to just to be with like-minded people where you can talk about your experiences and just feel encouraged and recharged to go home to do your solitary work. Now, and that and so both of those uh, groups are out there and available, but there's a lot of other groups that have kind of spun up and cropped up in the intervening years. And there's you know, groups you know, like um, Temple of the Silver Star or the you know, Temple of Thalema, Church of Thalema, and, and so on. And we also have, um, you know, a, a time where there's just this thriving online community, whether it's, you know, on Discord, there's a number of Discords dedicated to Magic and Thalema and podcasts like this and, uh, you know, YouTube videos and so on. So it's not even necessary for someone to join if they don't want to. Although certainly, you know, being around other people, either as a, having just a single teacher or having a community around you, um, is really nice. Although in some of these cases, that community may be virtual. So yeah, there's just loads of options out there for people who uh, want to go into this further. Mm, excellent. Okay. Last question here for you. And, and so the book is titled that we put together as Lion of Light. And we chose that title when we were doing research around this, there was the, the do what thou wilt document, which he referred, Robert Anton Wilson kind of referred to as his short piece on Crowley and that he was working on a book length piece called line of light that, uh, there's not a trace of so far. So we don't know if that was ever written or not, but we, we stole the title because we really liked it. And we've had some discussions that we included in the back of the book about what we thought it meant. But I'm wondering uh, if you have a thought on what line of light represents, not to put you on the spot or anything. Yeah. Um, well, I might venture that um, Crowley often refers to something called the lion's serpent, mm. the, which is something you see on Gnostic gems, you know, uh, a, a snake with a lion's head. So you, you get that symbol, the idea of, of the lion, but you also get uh, the, the serpent, who in one interpretation of Genesis perhaps is the, the source of knowledge, who had provided knowledge to humanity and illumination, enlightenment, mm -hmm. in much the same way that uh, Prometheus you know, brought fire from heaven in the Greek myth. And um, further uh, integrating that, uh, there, there's a point at which Crowley also happens to see a morphological parallel between the um, lion-headed serpents and the spermatozoon, which then also ties that into you know his practice of sex magic, which we didn't even get a chance to get into, but uh, there's so much there more we could unpack. So, um, and I let you do it. Yeah, yeah, and in Gnostic Mass, you know, this this is uh, following the point where the priest uh, dips the lance into the cup of the priestess, and they exclaim "Reliu," which is described in the vision and the voice as the sound that doves make when they climax. Um, mm -hmm. After that moment, the priest you know strikes his breast and says, "O lion and O serpent, that destroy the destroyer, be mighty among us." So, um, yeah, I think there's a whole lot there. Not an imagery around the lion that you can play with. Yeah. I also can't help but think of um, uh, Rabbi Isaac Luria, who is one of the foremost uh, exponents and developers of the Kabbalah, who was known as as the lion as well, um, by the fact that his title, you know, um, you know Rabbi Isaac Luria in Hebrew, um, has the letters A, R, and I, which is the lion in, in Hebrew. 
So yeah, lots of lots of ways we can go with that. Nice. Well, what can you say about sex magic? <laughs> what, what what can't you say? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, this this is something that once the idea was planted in his head by Theodore Royce, the head of the uh, OTO. Crowley, you know, it, it made like this light bulb go on in Crowley's head. I mean, something he had certainly toyed around with and played with before, but um, when he realized that, you know, this central secret of the OTO essentially came down to the idea that rather than sex being part of a ritual and doing all this ritual folder all, you know, I don't mean that in a negative way. A ritual can be very powerful and beautiful and efficacious, but that um, sex itself could be a ritual. Crowley basically discarded all the uh, trappings of ceremonial magic and kind of dove into this uh, headlong because it seemed to him to be a much more profound and effective way of doing his magic. And that's, that basically became his practice for the uh, subsequent uh, you know, 30 years of his life, 30 plus years. So you can know, I really see so much of the magic in his reign, you know, these, these things like, you know, the the rates of a Lewis and the vision of the voice and, you know, Abelde's working and all that. Those, those are actually rather like in his first, you know, 10 years of ceremonial magic. And after that, it's kind of like, okay, we're going to be a sex magician now. Right. Yeah. It certainly seemed to be a turning point from, yeah. from where I sit. And is it as simple as using sex to kind of raise the energy and then you direct it in a way depending on what your goals and aims are is that what we don't talk about in sex magic yeah well i think um yeah the idea in with any magic is to focus your concentration and your intention and to raise some energy and to release it into the world and that uh, you know sex is a great and effective way of doing that so uh it's the the thing is that most people have sex for pleasure, and there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, you know, Crowley came to the conclusion that it could be used for much more than that, and that it was in fact a uh, a holy thing, a sacrament for him. Yeah, which doesn't mean he didn't enjoy it, but it also meant that though that he had that that this layer of sacred sexuality and the you know, magic and intention laid over the top of it. Yeah, that, that's the word that came to my mind was intention. Like, there's just a different intentionality that he put behind it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, very it's mindfulness. As you know, it, it, to use the modern psychological jargon. There you go. There you go. All right, Richard, it's been a pleasure. You've uh, got Perdurabo, which is, I would say, the most extensive Crowley biography out there, as far as I can tell. And you've got a book on. Thelema, I apologize, I don't have it in my notes, but the wiser introduction. Oh, the wiser, concise guide to Alistair Crowley. Okay, wiser, concise guide to Alistair Crowley. So you cover a little bit of the man and the magic in that yeah. book. Then, um, yeah, there's you know, a few other books I've got out there. Um, the you know book Panic in Detroit, as I mentioned, as the book that does the deep dive in the Detroit period. And uh, end of this year, Oxford University Press will be releasing Friendship and Doubt. Uh, Alistair Crowley, J.F.C. Fuller, okay. British agnosticism. That's it. Okay, I look forward to that one. And um, you're on Twitter. Yeah, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads. You're around. You're around. Yeah, You've right. got a web page. Well, Richard, thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks again oh. for your contribution to the book. Yeah, I mean, thank you for both you know, inviting me to contribute to the book. That was a real joy. And for coming on and talking to you here today. 
I really it was it was great. Yeah, yeah, enjoyed it. That concludes the episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Richard has a delightful little smile that comes out as he talks about Raw and Crowley, and it really was a pleasure to talk to him. A big thank you to Richard Kaczynski for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you to Christina Pearson of the Robert Anton Wilson Trust and Richard Rossa of Flirtos Prep. And thank you to Ryan Reeves, as always, for putting it all together. Lon Milo Duquette will be my guest on the next episode, releasing on the 23rd of September. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor e hilaritas. Bye. Uh-huh.